Welcome to the Garbage Pod. One pod, one load of garbage. 29 and 28. Remanded in custody. There's something curious about this broadcast. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 52 of the Garbage Pod. I know it's been a long while since a Garbage Pod episode has been launched into the podosphere, but hopefully you have been enjoying the first two episodes of the Garbage Pod tap room and content from our sibling podcast TGP Nominal. Links to both these podcasts can be found on the menu at www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com. The first thing I wanted to talk about on the show tonight is a remarkable event that took place on September the 30th. International Podcast Day. Regular listeners might recall Dave Lee, the co-founder of International Podcast Day, coming on board the Garbage Pod last year to chat with me about the, their inaugural event. 2015's event was truly global. Uh, good morning, uh, good evening, good afternoon to all of the uh, listeners uh, across the globe. We're going to speak in Polish. We are Polish, so sorry for that, but it will be way better for us uh, to, to conduct you know, our, our conversation in Polish. No właśnie, to teraz może posłuchamy krótkiego nagrania, które wiąże się z początkiem polskiego podcastingu, a które zostało wykonane no, 10 lat temu. Posłuchajmy. I'm uh, Simon Dukert. I'm coming from Nuremberg, which is a small city in the south of Germany. And I would like to uh, welcome Henning Krause. Henning, du kommst Hi, Simon. Hi, grüß dich. Kannst du mich gut hören? Ich höre dich super. Ausgezeichnet. Buenos días, desde España. Aquí son las 8 de la mañana y me dispongo a acompañaros en la siguiente hora de emisión de este fantástico evento mundial que celebra el podcasting. To anyone perhaps who doesn't know who, who we are, um, we do a lot of work with the UK podcasters uh, here in the UK, as the name suggests. Uh, we started, um, is it nearly two years ago now, Mike? Yeah, it was March 2014. We did our first meetup in uh, London in the UK and it had about 25 podcasters attending and we had some nibbles and some beers and some soft drinks yeah. uh, and it ended up going on until four in the morning. So, it did. <laughs> uh, the garbage pot is, is in the chat saying, hey, Mike, uh, and hi to you, Isabella. And uh, yeah. obviously the garbage pot uh, was an attendee at our very first UK podcast yeah, meetup. was, <laughs> yes. As you heard there, we even received a mention from Mike and Isabella Russell from you. UK podcasters. The event took the form of a 30-hour global podcasting relay with 11 countries taking part. The podcast started in Australia and continued through New Zealand, Poland, Germany, Finland, Spain, England, Scotland, Argentina, Canada, and then finished off in the United States with a rather emotional closing speech from the International Podcast Day founder, Steve Lee. It is the passion of community. And as, as each one of these people that have been on this broadcast for the past 30 hours, their communities that have made International Podcast Day, period. There's no name behind it. We may be the tunnel. We may be the funnel to make this happen. We'll lay the pavement down and it's up to those communities to take it how they want. That's very important to me because International Podcast Day is not about a person. It's about all of us. And it's 
something that to me is very important. Two years ago, we started building on this project that we had this idea about and it's built relationships and it's what it's about. And now that we have that relationship, we can talk about other things or discuss other issues uh, that can be impeding what we're trying to attempt. And we don't want that. A fabulous team with Daniel, Ray Ortega, Nick Suberling, Dave Jackson, and Dave Lee. I love you guys. I really do. And it's not that I'm tired that I'm saying that. It's because I truly, from the bottom of my heart, mean it. We started four months ago just putting this one day together. And it was a challenge. When you looked at that schedule that came out, broadcasting from 11 countries, four different languages, in the amount of various topical content that there was, it was phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, Daniel and I even watched the, the Polish and German and Spanish ones. We were, we were intrigued. We didn't have a clue what they were saying, but I loved it. And you know why I loved it? Their communities came to blab and chatted in their native language to interact with them. That is what International Podcast Day is about. I don't care if it's a tech show, a comedy show, speak into that microphone to those people, just like I'm talking to you right now, and go change a life. It will make your life so much better. Today, over the last 30 hours, we trended number one on Twitter for about, I'm going to say about 16 hours. It's now posted. We trended number one on Facebook, number one. It's because of the community. Community. NBC picked up the story. We just saw not long ago the NFL's tweeting podcast day. There was an Ars technical article that says, thank goodness the fix for iOS 9 came out today for the podcast app because it's podcast day. Go read it. It's amazing. People that held their own events, people that started a podcast today, people that have created videos and artwork and done amazing things. I think there was something like almost 100,000 tweets today. It blows my mind. So where do I end with this? Because we care, don't we? We all care. We care about our show. We care about other podcasters. And we better darn well care about our listeners. The easiest thing about podcasting is talking into this thing and recording it. The most difficult part is the reaching and the touching to make that relationship. And that, my folks, is International Podcast Day. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. So I'm here in the the, the lovely seaside town of um, Skegness, which is in Lincolnshire in uh, Great Britain, and we're at an attraction called Natureland, and it's it's as you can guess, there are wildlife here, um, but it's not just um, an attraction for wildlife; it's also um, a sanctuary. Um, now I'm with um, Duncan Eden, who um, actually works here. What what is your role here, Duncan? Um, well, me and my brother run the place. Um, our father opened Natureland in 1965, and um, I've been working here for 30 odd years now. And I've done just about all the <laughs> all the jobs going. So uh, now um, my dad's retired, and Richard and myself 
run Nature together with our families and staff. Wow, so it is very much a, a, a family um, setup here. It is indeed, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Now, we're standing here at the... Um, area which is the the hospital uh, for for seals um, the area that we're at Skegness and around the wash and um, uh, off just off the the north coast as well famous for seals in this uh, neck of the woods aren't they it is yeah I and mean, the wash um, between Lincolnshire and Norfolk um, is home to around about 2,000 harbour seals um, and a lot of grey seals as well the two different species that we get around the UK um, but it's harbour seals that we're dealing mainly with at the moment because their popping season is in the summer um, and yeah it's one of the most the biggest colonies of harbour seals around England right mm-hmm. so tell us a little bit about the, the area that we're at, at the moment the hospital area yeah we're in the seal hospital at Natureland and we're on the public side so we're looking through the windows at the quarantine pens where we uh, put the seals when they're first rescued um, when the seals come into us they're often very very underweight so a normal weight for um, a newly born harbour seal pup is around about 10 kilos and um, we've had them in weighing half that amount so you can imagine how emaciated and dehydrated they are sometimes yes, yeah. when they come into us um, they get separated from their mothers occasionally and they should be feeding on the mother's milk for about a month before they separate and fend for themselves but if they get separated very early on there's, there's no chance of survival unfortunately so they get weaker thinner and washed up onto the beaches that's where we step in um, members of the public usually walking the dogs or having a walk on the beach spot the seals report them to us and we'll go out and uh, pick them up if necessary bring them back to our hospital and that's where the work begins uh, here so they're in quarantine, it's a little bit like intensive care, so they get antibiotics if they need them, rehydration uh, fluids, um, worming uh, injections, um, just depends what's wrong with them when they can come in. So what do people need to do if, they, if they're actually out there on the coast and they actually notice that they might see a seal in distress, mm-hmm. uh, what would be the first thing to do? Um, well, the first thing really is to step back and just observe for a few minutes because sometimes a seal pup will come up onto the beach um, and its mother will be lurking in the, in the sea or the waves nearby and the last thing anybody wants to do is to separate a, a mother and pup relationship so mm-hmm. if they do that, if the pup looks quite chubby and healthy and it's flapping around on the beach uh, and they happen to see an adult seal you know, just off, off uh, offshore in the waves then it's 90% sure everything's okay. If there's no adult about and the seal looks um, thin, if you can walk straight up to it without it rushing back into the sea, then there could be something wrong. So that's the time to sort of call, um, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. If you're around about Skegness, then by all means give us a ring. Yeah. Um, um, the RSPCA is always on alert for seal pups and has a couple of different rescue centres around the UK and there are various other seal sanctuaries around about um, the coastline of the UK okay that's great to get in touch with them and then you know they come out and assess the situation and rescue the seal if necessary so what have we actually got uh, here at the moment yep in our in our seal hospital so we've got three little pups in the mo- at the moment this is the most recent one just for rescued on the 7th of September he's just had his breakfast um, Curtis who works in the hospital 
Um, when they first come into us, of course, they've been feeding on the mother's milk. They probably don't know what fish are. Right. So we have to do what we call force feed them. So we have to just sit astride them, open their mouth, and push the fish down. Right. Um, after literally just two or three, four days, they associate the nice full feeling they're getting in their stomachs with the fish, and they'll start to hand feed. Uh, and we feed little and often, so five times throughout the day with small amounts of fish to start with. Uh, and once they're digestive system um, can cope and they beg him for more food then we increase it very gradually so what kind of fish do they actually eat well in here we f- we feed them on herrings right um, it's a good good solid fish um, and the fat content is very good for putting weight on them um, out in the wild um, they're quite opportunist so depends what fish they come across around here a lot of flatfish um, but it depends just where they, where they are really um, might come across herrings but they'll, in times of uh, when, when fish are short they'll eat crabs and things like that as well so uh, the, the teeth are quite strong enough to get through the shells oh, they have very strong jaws yeah. and very very sharp teeth each tooth has a five cutting edges to it wow. and their straws, uh, jaws sorry, are about as strong as an Alsatian dog so stronger wow yeah so you don't want to get your fingers in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, um, so they're in the hospital at the moment. Um, probably going to be in the hospital two to three weeks until they put on enough weight and enough blubber to be resistant against the cold. Um, some people say, well, or shouldn't they be in water? <clears throat> well, they're not really like dolphins and whales that have to be wet all the time. Mm-hmm. In the wild, seals come out on the sandbanks and bask in the sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're quite happy out of water. There's no problem that way around. And in fact, if we put these little guys in, in cold water now, they'll probably get hypothermia because there's no resistance, no blubber. Yeah. So we've got to build that blubber up before we can transfer them outside into the, uh, the pools. So how long is it before they actually start to get the, the proper, um, the adult uh, blubber and, and, and skin? Oh, again, in, well, in the wild, um, during that first four weeks when they're feeding from the mother, mm-hmm. they go from about 10 kilos um, to at least double that, probably treble that, because the mother's milk is so rich in fat. Um, and so they're, they're resistant to the cold very, very quickly. Um, and after that four weeks on feeding all the mother's milk, that's it, they're independent. They have right. to fend for themselves in the wild. Wow. So it's very, very short you know, time, uh, contact time with the mothers. Um, it takes us a little bit longer than that. Um, so we get them um, round about, let's say, 12, 13 kilos, so they've got a bit of blubber on them. Then they'll go out to the, the rearing pool. Mm-hmm. Once they're out there, we teach them to feed on fish in the water, because at the moment they're getting hand-fed. Um, and also we get them up to our release weight. And the release weight in, from here is what it would be when they're separated from the mothers in the wild. So we try and get them up to um, about 30 kilos and then it's time to go as long as they're they're healthy yeah um, we tag them with a release tag in the rear flippers mm-hmm. um, and then if they do turn up anywhere else we can get to yes. know about it and some of the seals released from Skegness have got as far as France uh, Scotland and Holland all right and been perfectly healthy and integrated in the local colonies so it's a, a global register then of when you tag them the the rest of the community uh, who are involved in um, seal rescue and what what have you yeah, yeah. About what, what we do we tag we tag them 
with a specific number and colored tag. And then we pass on all our tagging information to the Sea Mammal Research Unit, which is based in St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And all the other UK sanctuaries do the same. Right. So if one you know, tag turns up, um, it gets reported to them and then they can see which number it is and where it's come from and the information gets fed back to the sanctuary where it came from. Brilliant. Okay, so we're now at the rearing pool, which is where the seals get transferred to after they've been into the hospital. So there's three in here at the moment. Um, the pool's just filling up. We've just cleaned it out, so the seawater, fresh seawater coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and these have progressed through the hospital, as you can see. One really fat one here, a medium one, and a little bit skinnier one at the far end. Um, so this is where we fatten them up ready for release. They've already got the release tags in, as you can see in the rear flippers there. Oh yeah. Number yeah, 30 number there. Yeah. Yeah. This one's Charlie. Um, the one in the middle is Celebration. And then we've got Carla up the far end. So I can see with this one um, just starting to shed the, 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 the baby sort of... Um, what would you call that? Is it Well, the fur... It, it, these are actually the, the the harbour seals are born with their adult fur. Oh right. Yeah. So they're a little bit different. So they, they actually shed that white fluffy fur whilst they're in the mother's womb. Oh right. Yeah. So these won't molt again for another year now. Um, but they they look different when they're wet. This one's all fluffy and dried out, but yeah. it's got a wet patch. So it it looks you know looks very different. So when they're wet, they're very very sleek, as you can see from from these two. Mm -hmm. And then when they're drying out, they go all fluffy and furry. Celebration is quite a, uh, a different seal pool because of the way it was rescued. It was found um, by a bird watcher right. on the marshes and um, he noticed a, a group of cows all gathered around a muddy puddle in the field and he got his binoculars on it and he saw this little seal pub in, in, the, puddle. in the puddle <laughs> with about 20 cows all around it. Um, and so he went to investigate and um, it was on the marshes where the tide comes right up to the edge of the, the fields. So it had been washed in with the, with the tide and the tide had gone out and left Celebration high and dry. And uh, so he, he rescued her um, and contacted us and we went and picked it up. Uh, I think it's the first one we've ever rescued from a cow field. From a cow field, yeah, this is a very unusual place. Yeah. And he, he took some great pictures um, of the, the cows looking at it and uh, obviously we put it up on our Facebook and social media and it went viral we got um, radio stations from America and Denmark and, and lots of news agencies wanting to use the, the photographs which was fantastic yeah. publicity for definitely for definitely that's brilliant so these guys um, probably about another two or three weeks and Charlie and Celebration will be ready for going back into the into the wild right so they go straight back into the wild they don't there's not like a like a sea pen that they, they get put in and then gradually they just get put straight into the wild yeah yep. we crate them up here and then we take them straight over the back of nature land so we're only about a couple of hundred yards from the sea mm -hmm. uh, we'll take them right to the edge of the sea uh, open up the crates and off they go and they all vary sometimes they'll stick together Sometimes one will go one way, one will go the other way. Um, sometimes they'll all stick around, and sometimes they'll go straight out to sea. But they're back in the wild environment, and you know their the natural instincts take over, um, and we, we don't have any problems from there on in, really. Brilliant. 
And we've released, um, I think it's 725 since we first started doing this work and regularly now between 30 and 50 seals a year that we rescue and release back into the wild. That's quite a lot. During, you know, 34, that's yeah. a lot of time, isn't it? Really? A lot of time, a lot of money. Each one we've calculated costs us around about £2,000. Right. So we're between 60 and £100,000 a year to do the seal rescue work that we do. Uh, we don't get any grants or anything like that, so we rely on our general public and coming in to see us. Can, uh, can people actually send in donations? Yeah, we do um, what we call yep, donations. Fine, we've got a special account called the Seal Hospital account, and that money's just used for food and medicines, etc., for the, for the rescued seal pups. <laughs> Um, we do run a Friends of the Seal Hospital scheme, where from anything from £25 upwards for a year. Um, we send newsletters out and some complimentary tickets to come and visit, etc. Um, and, you know, a lot of people support us through that as well, which we're very grateful for. So I think what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll put a link to uh, how people can donate and things on, on the website. So um, maybe our listeners would like to help you out. Yeah, that would be fantastic, yeah. So it's not just um, seals that you've got at uh, Natureland, is it? No, we've got lots of other animals as well. Um, basically to give people a, a really nice visit and a worthwhile visit. Um, we stood here looking at our penguins. Um, yeah. Which are, are jackass penguins. <laughs> right. From South Africa. And uh, we've had jackass penguins since we opened in 1965. So they're one of your... Uh, big attractions really having having them that long in in, in yeah, the park very popular uh, a penguin you know penguins are animals anyway um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people come to see them we've bred them quite a lot over the years and in fact in one of their little nesting holes at the moment we've got a female sat on two eggs oh wow and they're due to hatch literally any day now <laughs> um, she's been sat on them for just over 30 days and they take about 35 days to hatch so um, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we might see, you know, a couple of baby penguins in the next week or so. I'll have to keep an eye out on your um, social media, yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, penguins are very popular, but we've lots of other animals as well. Um, meerkats, um, alpacas. Alpacas were new this year. Um, we've got a beautiful tropical butterfly house uh, where you walk through. A jungle setting with all the butterflies flying around you, tropical birds, a pet's corner with um, goats and sheep and rabbits and guinea pigs, yeah. um, a lovely aquarium with all sorts of um, tropical fish uh, from the Nemo's and Dories, uh, right through to, to fish that are found off the coast of uh, Lincolnshire, so cod and bass and spotted dogfish and things like that. Wow. Uh, great variety of fish to be seen in there. Um, tropical house with lots of creepy crawlies in such as tarantulas and scorpions even got crocodiles in there wow um, so quite a variety of, of things to see um, to keep people happy when they when they visit so what would you say is the most unusual animal that you've got here oh wow that's uh, that's a good question I don't know about unusual um, we've had some unusual rescues over the years. I'd imagine so. Um, because obviously where we are on the coast, we don't only get seals washed up. Um, we get quite a lot of seabirds that we've dealt with. Yeah. But um, some of the more unusual ones, we do occasionally get harbour porpoises, which are like a mini dolphin, um, that gets stranded on the beach. 
Um, usually what we do with those is that we have them in a, our big seal pool for a couple of days just to get them stabilized mm -hmm. and then um, the local inshore lifeboat is very very helpful and they help us to relaunch them back at sea quite a way out um, but we've had we've had the odd dolphin we've had stranded whales washed up on the beach but the most unusual thing um, was a walrus wow. one many many years ago um, uh, quite a famous or he became quite famous um, a walrus that we named Wally and he was washed up um, literally on the beach just a few hundred yards away from nature land so um, is it that's pretty far off course then really he was really should have been up there <laughs> in the Arctic yes uh, but we did manage to return him with help from the RSPCA and World Wildlife Fund we got him um, on a plane from Heathrow up to Iceland on a boat from Iceland back to Greenland area and dropped off back into the sea that was a so that was really unusual probably once in a lifetime thing I think that was wow but it's good though I mean as you're saying that the um that the lifeboat guys were helping out so it's you know they're not just helping to rescue people they're helping with the uh, recovery the of well. the wildlife yeah as well. yeah we, we you know we're friends if you like with a lot of local organizations the um the nature reserve national nature reserve gibraltar point where the wardens will uh, look out for for wildlife for us and uh, assist us in any way we can we've we've rescued stranded porpoises from there and they've allowed us to release the odd seal from there that probably didn't want to go off you know our, our little bit of beach so yeah we're, we're friends with lots of local organizations that uh, we get together and help each other that was really fantastic talking with you Duncan it's, it's been a, a pleasure to walk around and actually have someone with us that can tell us what's going on here you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thanks. If you want to help out Natureland with a donation, there are links in the show notes. We're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, I will be talking with a very special guest. Hello. The Three Cuckoos Podcast. <laughs> you are here. You have downloaded us. Thank you very, very much. That's an enormous moth. Final cut of the podcast. We'll leave it to the deaf member. Yeah. The deaf member of the group, yeah. Kissy fur is pretty good gummy bear. Kissy... Whoa, hang on. Kissy fur. Turn your fleece into a trendy gilet. Hello, pets, and welcome to this week's How To. Thank you for the follow, Barry. If I could turn back time, thinking's higher. I'm coming. <laughs> Some cheese and a pickle. Cheese and fine wine. Oh, it's the Three Cuckoos podcast. That's it for this week's Lucky <laughs> News. <laughs> the worst podcast item ever. Tune in, iTunes, Stitcher, download us, subscribe us, yeah. stream us. Visit our blog. Because I do that. Yeah. And get us at Three Cuckoos. That would be a show. Regular listeners will know that Paralympic sport is something very close to our hearts at the Garbage Pod. And our Paralympic journey has been well documented on the podcast and in our social media feeds. Following on from our Paralympic journey, we have a very special guest on the show today. And that is Paralympian and gold medalist, Naomi Richie. She's MBE. Hello, Naomi. How are you Hi. doing? Uh, are you still trying to get used to having MBE at the end of your, your name? Yeah, it's still a little bit strange and I tend not to put it on too many things. But um, then people go, oh, you're an MBE as well. I'm like, yep. <laughs> so yeah, it does feel very strange, but really exciting as well. 
Now, tell the um, the listeners what event you were actually taking part in to get your gold medal. I was um, part of the Mixed Coxed Four at London 2012. We finished racing on sort of day three or four of the Games, which is great because we got to enjoy the rest of it. Um, but part of the, the rowing team um, in which we have four different boat categories and we are a boat category that still allows us to use our legs, our trunk and our arms and all our disabilities are quite minimal. Now you were telling me that during the race you had to wear uh, blackened out uh, goggles. Yes. What, what's the reason um, for that? All visually impaired people have to wear blacked out goggles basically making us as blind as one another so that you know, it's a level playing field, I suppose. So, yeah, I it was purely relying on my hearing and, and my sense of feel of the boat. When we were at the stadium, uh, the Olympic Stadium, the, the crowd noise was just unbelievable. I think it was referred to as the wall of sound. Now, in a, in a more confined environment, it was quite heavy. Now, did you actually get that uh, on the water as well? Oh, absolutely. They managed to turn Dorney into this incredible sort of three-dimensional rowing um, stadium and and um, we had people either side, crowds either side, thousands of people. And sound travels on water really, really well. So when you've got thousands of people screaming, go GB, either side of you, that is literally all you can hear. So for the last 300 metres of the race, I could not hear a thing other than the crowd, which is a great you know, encouragement and what you want to hear. And um, because you know that most of them are shouting for you. There might have been a couple of Australians and a couple of Germans and a couple of French in the crowd, but not many. So it's incredibly, you know, empowering and inspiring to hear them all shouting for you. But it was, it was known as the Dawny Roar. And it meant <laughs> that I couldn't hear our cocks. I couldn't hear the Germans who'd been in the lead at halfway. I had no idea that we'd even cross the finish line until Dave, who sat in front of me, collapsed onto my feet because I couldn't hear the buzzer. It was that loud. Wow. It must have been an extraordinary feeling. It was, absolutely. I can't even, it's it's really hard to describe. It's one of those sort of dreams, you know, you wake up in the morning feeling great, and then gradually throughout the day you start to forget little details, and you're trying to clutch hold of those memories to bring it back to life. But that's why I quite enjoy talking about it, because it makes it real again for me. And obviously the Paralympics, London 2012, wasn't your your only medal i mean you've you've had so many accolades as well can can you go through some of those with us oh yeah cool uh, i've been um, in the rowing team since 2004 um, and that obviously is an olympic year but at the time rowing was not a paralympic sport i won the first three world championships i was in so 2004 five and six came second to the germans again the, the germans have always been a little bit close <laughs> in terms of in terms of competing with us um and then we debuted as a new sport at beijing paralympic games and were beaten by not the germans the italians and the usa so we came back with the bronze medal which whilst i'm incredibly proud of it was also very disappointing because it, had we had a better row had we done our best had we done all the things we've been practicing time and time again we were capable of having a better result we were capable of getting a better medal than we did so we were all very disappointed with that but it spurred me on to london i had another four years to get it right actually and won another two world championships between then and london so I've heard this before where it's kind of like, I don't like using the phrase putting a carrot in front of the donkey, but there's something to yeah. really go for. And London, home games, you know, if I hadn't given that a go, I never would have forgiven myself. I was yeah, going through the rest of my life going, oh, but what if I just tried? What if I just had a go? So I couldn't, I just couldn't give up after Beijing. I mean, really, when you think of it, though, I mean, actually winning a medal 
in an event that is the, the first time it's actually been put out there is mm. is quite a, a feat in itself. Yeah, it is, but it still wasn't a gold, <laughs> <laughs> and it just wasn't good enough. Um, because we could have done better. If if we'd have had the best row we possibly could and had rowed our neatest, our fastest, then and we'd still got a bronze, then we could say, you know what, we did the best we could possibly do on that day and they were just better. But that wasn't the case. It was a case of we did a really bad job and we could have beaten them if we'd done a better job. That's a harder to deal with than knowing you've done the best you can do. I, I can get that. Yeah, definitely. Now, how long have you actually been uh, rowing for? I was rowing, started rowing in 2004. I didn't row before that time. Um, I got a phone call from a man called Simon, who was the then coach of the disabled rowing team in Great Britain. And um, the international governing body had just changed the rules slightly, which meant you had to have a mixed crew, two boys and two girls. I think that was to raise, get more participants because it's quite hard to find four people with the right disabilities to be able to row that are just boys or just girls. So they had to mix it up a bit. And Great Britain had no girls. So I simply got a phone call from a guy called Simon. He said, I hear you're tall and you can't see very well. Do you want to come and try out for the team? And that's because one of my friends was currently in the team, a guy that I knew from college. It was an opportunity that I took and, wow, <laughs> stuff happened and it was really cool. <laughs> I, just, I just wondered there because I thought, I thought it was just a, a random phone call. You're, you're, you're tall and you can't see very well. Do you want to join our team? <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, no, luckily no, that sort of information isn't in the phone book. So um, it was through uh, through a friend of mine that he got my number. Oh, right. That, that did seem a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> so how much training did, have you had to put in? I mean, like in between meets and events? Oh, we it was a full-time, it was a life. It wasn't, it wasn't a job. You didn't leave it behind at five. You had to make sure you were eating the right thing, going to bed at the right time, organised with the right kit. But it was it was six days a week, only a couple of days off in the in the summer, which was sort of April through to early September, and then we'd have three weeks off, and then back in again. So it's, it's, it is a lifestyle rather than a, a job or a or a pastime. So you, did you have a job at the same time as? as no, no, I didn't. We were lucky enough, fortunate enough to be lottery funded because we were Paralympic um, and world level sport. We were able to tap into the lottery funding, which was enough to be able to to rent where I needed to live, to be close to training and to, to live com- sort of comfortably. Not, you know, no footballers, not that kind <laughs> of money by any stretch of the imagination. And it was performance-based as well. So if you didn't achieve that year, the funding would decrease. And if you did achieve, your funding would increase. So it would be performance-based. So you always, and it'd be reviewed twice a year. So you always had to stay on top of your game. You always had to stay the best you could be. Right. But if someone happened to be better than you and you weren't the best, then your funding would be adjusted accordingly. It's quite cutthroat. It's quite hard. It seems it, yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Not only did you get a gold medal, and, and, and a lot of our overseas listeners might not know this, but you also had a post box painted gold in your yeah. honour, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was a lovely Royal Mail thing. They created a stamp, uh, a Royal Mail stamp for every gold medal winner. Um, well, I think it was every, it might have been every medal winner, maybe just gold, um, for, for the games. And they also, Great Britain medal winners, that is. And then, and they also, um, allowed you to have the post box of your choice. So in your hometown or where you were brought up or whatever, um, painted gold, which was very exciting. So I've got the big double fat post box in Marlow High Street, which is, I walk past on a regular basis. And I've got <laughs> two post boxes between my house and that one. And I still walk all the way to that one to post anything. 
Yeah, it's just 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 to make a point. That's my post box. Just to make a point. That is mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's for communities. It's for everyone to share, everyone to smile at, and you know, it's nice when um, during summer. Well, all around the year, really. Marlow's a very very beautiful little town, and you get a lot of people visiting. So it's nice to see. Even if, you know, I just, as I'm just walking past, I might see a family having their photo taken by it. And it's just, it makes me smile. It makes me feel so proud that that is something that can be enjoyed by so many people. That's brilliant. So being in Buckinghamshire, I mean, the the actual venue for the Paralympic uh, event, it's not that far from you really, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's only about 20, 25 minutes drive. Yeah, that's what I thought. Not that far at all. Did you have chance to actually go on the course beforehand and get the feel for it? Oh, and... yes. Rose on it plenty of times. It's a good venue for many local regattas. Um, as it is a proper buoyed straight course. Um, so there are lots of regattas held there throughout the year, and we've done some training camps there and getting used to it. Also, there's been the World Championships were there in 2006, so I've been I've been used to that, used to Dorney Lake for a very long time since it opened. So will you be going to Rio next year? No, I won't. Um, I retired in 2013. I did one more year after the Games um, and won my sixth world title, which was very exciting. But I just kind of thought, well, it's never going to get any better than London. London was special. London was at home. And it might be incredible to win a Golden Rio, but actually it's never. There's something about London that makes it extra special. So, And I can't ever beat that. On a massive high. Yes. Excellent. Absolutely. Now, tell me about your, your MPE. What, what was that like to, to receive... That was very surreal. We were in the ballroom at Buckingham Palace and it was Prince Charles and you have to walk to a certain person and then walk to another person and then he tells you when to go and then you have to turn and bow or curtsy with your boy or girl, walk forward, have a bit of a chat, shake hands, step backwards, bow, curtsy again, turn to your right and walk out. It's the most bizarre, weird, perfectly timed thing. Um, and we all had did it as a crew as well, which was unusual. Usually... He goes individuals, but we had to do this as, as a group of five, so we all had to be in unison. Um, it was almost more scary than trying to race a thousand meters in unison because <laughs> we hadn't practiced it time and time again. So we got a, you know, got one little practice, um, and then we were off. And it was, yeah, it was very surreal. But Prince Charles was very charming, very lovely. Told him how what we were all doing now, and he said he was incredibly proud of us as the rest of as the rest of the country was, which was just lovely. Brilliant. Now, do, do you still keep in touch and, and have any involvement in the rowing community still? or Not really. Um, I'm in touch with all my, my rowing colleagues from uh, from 2012 and, you know, friends I've made over the years. But no, I don't have any real direct contact with, with the sport as it is now. Everything, you know, it changes and I've moved on. I've now career in, in the world of business, which is a little bit crazy, um, from boat to boardroom, as they like to say. <laughs> um, I like watching from the sidelines and I like reading. I still get the Rowing and Regatta magazine. I still keep up to date with what's going on in the rowing world, but I have no direct contact with, with the um, Paralympic rowing team anymore. But that's not a problem. I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to let them do their thing. Yeah, because you kind of, as it were, pass the baton on... Yes. That's, that's a kind of a cliche, yeah, really. <laughs> and and Pam, who's the only rower from 2012, is still in the squad. Um, James is retired. He's now working for charities and working as a personal trainer. Dave is um, paracycling um, for Great Britain and training up in Scotland, which is where he's from. His postbox is in Aviemore. Um, James's postbox is in Stratford. 
Lily, who is our cock, her postbox is in Oxford and she's now working for Just Giving. And Pam, whose um, postbox is in Aylesbury or near Aylesbury. Um, <laughs> she's, uh, she's still in the squad. So, yeah, we're all doing our own thing. We met you at the uh, Field of Force Day. Uh, yeah. What was your feel of the day? It was awesome. It was so much fun. Um, I was just like a big kid. As soon as I got in the door, I was going, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Um, I feel bad because I don't recognize a lot of the costumes. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I really need to do my sort of movie and game research because I really don't know who some of these things are, what some of these things are, um, other than people, outfits, obviously. But, um, but it was just, it was absolutely magic and seeing so many smiles and telling the people that were coming to have a look and, and meet you know, meet the characters they loved and a lot of smiles, a lot of happy faces and the atmosphere was just really electric, real good buzz the whole day. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, I've said this and I'll say it again. If you don't um, come out of that event feeling different than when you went in, there's something mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> Definitely. It was. It was just awesome. It really, really was. I knew, I knew a couple of the guys. I've known them for a couple of years and they've helped me out um, with a few things um, dressed as stormtroopers and, and various other Star Wars characters. Um, and Dan asked me to do this last year. It was in my diary about this time last year um, to come up this year. So it was, it's was. it been in the diary for a while and it was a real, real joy to come along and, and share it and be part of it. Brilliant. Well, Thanks for talking with us, Naomi. It's been an absolute no honour to have you on board the Garbage Pod. Um, and and <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll um, continue with our um, Paralympic journey. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks again. That'd be really good. It was awesome meeting up with Naomi, and I even got to hold her gold medal. Naomi was also one of the guests at the Spirit in Motion Festival that Adri and I attended for the torch handover from Stoke Mandeville to Sochi for the 2014 Winter Paralympics. There are photos of when Naomi and I met, plus her gold postbox and the stamp that was issued by the Royal Mail commemorating the team's win, along with a video of the race in the show notes. We mentioned an event called Field of Force Day in the audio, and uh, if you want to know more about that event, it features in the latest episode of our sibling podcast, TGP Nominal. Once again, there will be links to this episode in the show notes, but please listen because Field of Force Day is something really worth getting involved with. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, box pops or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spanheadproductions.weebly.com. Well, we've come to the end of another packed episode of The Garbage Pod, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Before I leave you, I'd just like to thank Duncan Yeadon from Natureland and Naomi Riches for taking the time out of their busy schedules to talk with us. Oh, before I forget, um, if you want to send in messages for our Christmas show, feel free. I know it's a bit early, but it's best to start getting the ball rolling now, and then uh, we'll be ready for the Christmas show. So that only leaves me to say, take care one and all, and I'll speak 
speak with you all again soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Garbage Pod. Be sure to visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.